0: Uh, welcome to Trinity Life Church. My name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here, along with Mike. Um, and really excited to be here today. I can tell that uh, the semester's over because all of our college students are gone, and you can tell we're a young church because all of our newlyweds are at their mama's church this weekend. And so, um, but thank you for being here this weekend. Um, and especially if this is your first time, or second time, or you know, just visiting Trinity Life Church. Um, Uh, There's a card inside of your program that was given to you today, and inside of it, um, you just let us know that you were here. We'd love to reach out to you and and grab coffee or have lunch, but also it's for those of you guys who, um, you know, Trinity Life is your home church as well. It's a chance for us as pastors to know how to pray for you weekly, so I want to encourage you guys that as the offering basket goes by later, or even during the midst of the sermon, that you'd fill that card out and have a prayer request or something like that I drop it in, in the basket uh, or in the, in the bag as the offering goes around, and um, we will be praying for you guys. So um, just a couple of announcements. while the kids are gone already, so I was going to say, hey, kids, let's say Happy Mother's Day to your moms. But um, today is Mother's Day, and we're really excited about uh, just how um, so many of you guys are having kids, and some of you guys are pregnant, and I won't ruin the news for some of you, but I'm um, really excited to see how the church is growing biologically and we wanted to do something um, small, but yeah, as a token of just uh, our love and appreciation for, for moms in our church. Um, our, our nursery coordinator, uh, Wing, she prepared a gift. And so when you leave the service, this is for all of our members and our guests. I want to make sure that you guys grab a gift, and there'll be some of our workers out there. Um, grab one of those gifts just to let you know that we appreciate you. Uh, but Mother's Day is not just about moms. It really is about celebrating womanhood. And so regardless of whether you have children or not, or if you're married, it doesn't matter, that you all play a role in nurturing um, the children in our community and one another. So um, I just want to, if I can just have all of the ladies, why don't you guys all stand up, and us men will give you a loud loud applause. All right, so ladies, why don't you guys all stand up, and we want to let you know. Come on, Kelly, stand up. Thank you. So we appreciate you guys, and we're praying for you So, um, <clears throat> As some of you guys know, um, my mom passed away two weeks ago, so this is a, a different Mother's Day for me. It's one that, like, I'm learning to look at the world differently now. I was talking to some of you guys earlier, and when somebody as close as your mom passes away, um, it makes the world look different, to be honest with you. And so today's not a Mother's Day sermon necessar- uh, necessarily, but... Um, it really, I mean, really, uh, it makes you look at the world differently. It's kind of like one of the most secure people in your life is gone, and so it requires you to begin to think about security in your own life in a different way. And so, um, like, I had a chance to celebrate my mom's um, homegoing uh, last week, and it was beautiful. So thank you for all the prayers and all the texts and the messages, and um, I really, um, our family has felt that. And I just want to encourage us as a church, as we're growing, as we're learning one another, that the best way to help, not just people who are mourning, that people that are in loss, but those of us who are sick in the church, those of us who are, you know, uh, in a, uh, different situations, that you can't reach out enough. Now, some people, they're really like, you know, standoffish and they don't want you to come over. That's fine. But there is a reality which the way that you become a community is you seize these moments, right? So let me use this as a teaching moment, that you seize moments like this, like life tragedies or life situations or when people are in transition, that you seize these moments to invest in them, All right? that? So um, we are continuing along in our series called The Art of Finding Joy. And in May specifically, because it is Mental Health Awareness Month, we want to take time out to really focus on the issue of mental health in our church. And it's a subject that not very many churches are willing and even interested in talking about we, we felt like it was such an important topic that, you know, especially in our city, in our country, where one out of five people in Canada will be diagnosed with some sort of mental illness, all right? And so there's probably about 70 people in, our, in this room right now. So I can't do the math. Um, I was not that type of Asian that accelerated. So let's see. That's like, what's so at least 15, all right? 10 to 15 of us in, in this room potentially have some kind of diagnosable mental illness, whether it be a mood disorder or postpartum or whatever it is, right? That, that, that's, that's a large amount of people for us to say we are silent on this issue because the Bible is not silent on this issue. And Jesus was not silent on this issue. And so we want to take this month uh, in particular to talk about mental health, Mental illness. As a matter of fact, we devise a thirty-one daily devotional. That um, did we did we run out? Did we pass them? Okay, we passed them all out. So we only ran off hundred. So apparently, we handed them all out. And it's a chance for you to daily process uh, through the Psalms and through the Philippians passage. Uh, what it, what does it mean to love Jesus and love God with um, with your with your mind? And so, um, ten years ago, when I was starting out as a young pastor. Um, uh, There was a young man named Matthew. He was 21 years old. And so he began exhibiting some really bizarre behavior. Um, He was at work and he was accusing people of stealing things. He was accusing his girlfriend of things. At home, he thought that people were coming in and out of his house, strange people. And so he became very paranoid. And so his grandparents, whom he was living with at the time, they called our pastoral team over. And so I was 25-ish, 26-ish at the time, and uh, so we prayed for him, and, um, and uh, so they asked me to disciple this young man, to spend time with him, share the gospel, and, and share the Bible with him. And so that was my task, and so I did that. And we spent time with him, and there, on one visit, uh, Matthew said to me, he began telling me his life story, which is weird, because I knew Matthew since he was a kid. So he began telling me this story. He said, you know, I'm 36 now, and I'm married, and I've got six kids, and I get to get back to my kids because there are some men that are after my family. And I looked at Matthew straight in the eyes and said, Matthew, I've known you since you were a toddler. You're 21 years old. You're not married. You don't have kids. And you're safe. Nobody's after you. And so this was the condition that Matthew was in. And so... Um, There was concern from the family and from other people that Matthew was demon-possessed, right? And so um, if you grew up in churches um, where, you know, you were familiar with that, you know, we spent a lot of time praying for him and singing with him and, and sharing scripture with him. And so we would regularly, you know, ask him if there was sin in his life. And I remember, you know, because I was in charge of kind of discipling him, having to kind of go through, you know, his spirit, his inventory of his life. Did he do anything that would have caused this <clears throat> in his life? And really, to be honest with you, in my heart, I knew this guy wasn't being possessed. Now, I don't know if that's the background that you come from. You believe in that stuff. All right. You don't have to believe it necessarily. But I, I, in, I've seen two cases of it upfront and personal, what I would really, really, like, without question and doubt in my mind of demon possession, and I know at least one friend of mine, who, very close friend of mine that I grew up with, who was uh, demon possessed, and so for me, like, I, it's, it's, you don't have to convince me of those things, but I knew, I didn't know anything about mental health, but I knew that Matthew wasn't demon possessed, and so a few months later, Matthew became very violent, and his grandparents called the police on him. And so they took him to the hospital. And then after figuring out how to do power of attorney, those kinds of things, um, he was diagnosed with uh, schizophrenia. And then after being treated with prolixin, uh, not too long afterwards, Matthew became um, like his old self again. And I learned something really important as a young pastor at that time. Just like you can't medicate a demon... You can't cast out mental illness. Right? So often in the church, we over-spiritualize health issues. Right? While every, everything in life is spiritual, not everything in life is cured by prayer and reading scripture. Right? And I'm a Bible guy, okay? So don't hear me the wrong way. Everything in life is spiritual, but not everything in life is cured by prayer. In reading the Bible. Catherine Green McCrate. she's a priest of the Episcopal Church um, of Yale. She's also diagnosed bipolar and she wrote this fantastic book that took me a long time to read, but it's a fantastic book. It's called Darkness is My Only, Only Companion, A Christian Response to Mental Illness. And in the book, she journeys through her bipolar disorder and she talks about how the church has helped her and hindered her. She's talked about how non-Christians have been a place of refuge in her life. And she's also talked about how she's grown in her faith and love for Jesus because of her illness. And she writes something that's very telling to the modern day church. And you guys can read along in the screen here. She says that depression is not just negative thinking. Depression is not just being down. It's being cast to the very end of your tether and quite frankly being dropped. And for those of you guys who have just experienced depression before, you know what she's talking about. And likewise, mania, which is the high end of bipolar Uh, Mania is more than just speeding mentally, more than euphoria, more than creative genius at work. The sick individual can't simply shrug it off or pull out of it. So often we say, hey, just wake up, get out of this. While God certainly can pick up the pieces and pull them together in a new way, this can happen only if the depressed brain makes it through to see again life among the living at the time of a free fall, such, as a po- such a possibility seems absolutely unimaginable. Christians who have not experienced either pole the high of mania, or the low of depression, must try to accept that this is the case, even if they can't understand it. There is so much learning we need to do as a Christian community. So much Within our mental and our emotional health is our ability. Within the emotional and mental health, within our emotional and mental health, there's the ability to process truth and lies. Right? And when our processor is broken, we don't know how to process truth and lies. All right? So um, I thought I'd illustrate this. Imagine Google inventing a mental-emotional processing machine called Google Mind. Isn't that cool? right. I don't want them to steal this idea. I have to patent it before they do. Similar to Google Translate. When working properly, whenever you type in a truth statement, so let's type in the truth statement. All right. Next slide. You are loved and accepted by God. All right. That's a truth statement. So Google Mind, when working properly, will crunch on this, and it will respond with this statement. The truth statement verified and accepted, and it will give you an emoji, smile emoji, right? Which I'm very annoyed by the Facebook new emojis that are coming out. Uh, I don't know if you guys like them or not. I don't, okay? (laughs) But if Google Mind is broke, let's go to the, uh, okay, all right, so bug. I was a software developer for nine years before I was a pastor. So there's a bug in Google Mind. It's broke, all right? Whenever you type in a truth statement, it would crunch and respond with this, truth statement tried and rejected. It's broken. It can't process the truth. It tried it. Didn't feel right. It rejects it. Emoji, sad face. Worse yet, when Google Mind is broken and it crunches on lie statements such as this statement right here, you are a failure and will never be accepted. Because it's broken, the output is this. Lie statement internalized and accepted. For most of us who have experienced this kind of brokenness, emoji, angry face. That's the broken mind. Mental illness isn't about someone who just doesn't have enough faith. It's about the brokenness of our bodies and our minds. You don't have to be sinning in order to have a mental illness, right? As a matter of fact, it's false biblical teaching to say that someone lacks faith whenever they struggle with mental illness. Let me say that again. It is false biblical teaching to say that someone lacks faith whenever they're struggling with mental illness. And the Apostle Paul is very concerned with these kinds of things. Because false teaching turns people away from Jesus. False teaching turns people away from the church. And we've seen this over and over in our country in particular in this passage, Paul is he's counteracting false teaching. In verse 18, he says, For many of whom I have often told you, and now even tell you with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And there were a group of believers that taught false doctrine, and they lived their life inconsistent of Jesus' message. And it turned others away from Jesus. It turned others away from the church. Oftentimes, without knowing it, you and I, us, For those of us who grew in certain traditions, we believe things wrongly about God, we believe things wrongly about the human experiences, and out of our wrong beliefs, we treat people incorrectly. We saw this with racism. Because we believe wrong things about God's creation, about about color, about ethnicity, about creed, we treat other people differently. There's an indictment on even Christians. And so the same thing we see happen in areas like um, socioeconomics and ethnicity, you see this happening as well in mental health and mental illness. There are many stigmas and myths in the church surrounding mental illness. And I just want to dispel just a few of them right off the bat. They're not very detailed, but I know as we've had conversations and we're learning from people and we're reading that there's some, there's some myths in the church that we need to dispel right away. mean, I just want to take care of that right off the bat. Number one is this. One of the common myths about mental illness in the church is that it's not okay for a Christian to struggle with mental illness. Let me say this. Permission. That if you struggle with some kind of mental illness, whether it's depression, postpartum, PTSD, I don't know what it is. The, the spectrum is wide. That you have permission to struggle through it. There's a myth that says, oh, you don't have it, and maybe nobody told you this, but you don't want your junk being aired, right? That's a myth. You know, your struggle with mental illness is is on par with somebody's struggles with their finances. And so you don't have to hide it. Second myth is that I can't share openly with people in the church about my mental illness, right? I can't do it because they'll think less of me. I'm not competent. I can't serve in the church if people knew that I was diagnosed as, you know, uh, by, right? So whatever it is, right? And so there's a myth that says, no, keep it to myself. Keep it a family secret. And, you know, when things are like that, you, you, it's hard to receive the healing that God has for you. That's a myth that you can't share openly. Now, you don't have to share with everybody. As a matter of fact, you, have, you should be discerning with whom you share with. But it doesn't mean that you shouldn't share at all. Number three, myth number three is: I just need to pray more, read scripture more, and have more faith that if I did these these things, God would cure me of my mental illness, right? For those of you guys who have struggled with mental illness, you know that it's not just about praying more or reading more scripture or going to more body life groups or, you know, listening to more sermons, you know, sometimes, sometimes that increases anxiety and depression. Why? Because it increases your guilt, doesn't it? Because you're falling short of the lifestyle that so-and-so, such-and-such is talking about. It increases the depression and the guilt. Should you pray more? Yeah, absolutely. Should you read about Bible? Yes. Should you have more faith? Yeah, because it leads to joy. But not necessarily because it's going to lead to the cure for your mental illness. Fourth myth is I don't need to see a counselor, a therapist, and take medicine. This is kind of piggybacking off of number three. I don't need to see a counselor, I don't need to see a therapist, I shouldn't take medicine. And I don't know where you fall in your philosophy on these things. Um, I've seen counselors before, love them. I can tell them whatever, they're not going to judge me. I pay them not to judge me, okay? (laughs) And so it's blissful. All right. And so there's something something about being able to share yourself with professionals who, who understand it objectively, and they won't judge you because of it. There's a freedom and there's a healing in it. Now, let me say this. I've known people that have visited therapists for 15, 20 years, and they've become dependent and codependent on therapists, All right? If you ever watch Suits, you guys ever watch Suits, and um, I'm trying to remember his name. Love him. Favorite character. I can't remember his name, though. Bald guy. Lewis. You know, <laughs> you guys know who Lewis is? He's always calling up his therapist, right? Like every moment of crisis, he's calling up his therapist. And I don't know if that's healthy. I'll be honest with you, okay? But th- there's nothing in the Bible that would say that it's, it's not okay to go see a counselor or therapist or, you know, because it's biological, take medicine to, to, to balance out your chemicals so that you can think right, right? None of these things are your saviors. But none of these things are necessary enemies or enemies of the faith. And fifthly, the, one of the most common myths about mental illness is that it's all the same, and you treat people the same. And I mean, really, it's very custom. It's very customized, right? You know, there's mood disorders. In my family, we have people who have OCD, you know, postpartum. There are those who have uh, deal with PTSD. Like, it, it, There are those that have chronic fatigue syndrome, and it affects their whole entire output in life, right? It's different. You don't paint the whole entire issue with the same paintbrush. It's very customized. It's like children. You deal with each person in a different way, right? There's a plethora of resources in the body of Christ for those who struggle with mental illness, and you may not know this. Tons of resources. As a matter of fact, uh, by the time our series is over, we plan to put on traininglife.ca slash joy. Uh, A a series of resources and places that you can reading and videos and books and and, and, and counseling places. There's tons of resources in the body of Christ that can aid us, those who deal with mental illness, and those of us who have family members or close loved ones that deal with it as well. Ever since the Old Testament times, the Bible has been addressing mental health. King David laments in his bout of depression in Psalms 42, verse 5. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Here's the greatest king Israel has ever known after his depression. He's singing a song about it, a song for God's people to sing. He writes a song about his depression for God's people to sing, to remind themselves that God is present when the sun is shining in the mountaintops, but God is also present in the darkest of your valleys. He's reminding church, sing about this. We don't just sing praises. We can also sing laments. The Bible has always provided language for us to have these discussions. Let's not forget the story of Moses, who because of burnout and exhaustion in Numbers, verse chapter 11, he wanted his life to end. He was just so tired, so exhausted. He said to God, just take my life. It would be better if I wasn't born, he says to God. Let's not forget Jonah. Because of guilt and anger, sometimes... Mental illness is is caused by our own sin because of his guilt and anger. And Jonah says in chapter 4 that he just wanted to die. Let's not forget about Job. Everybody knows about Job. Because of situations, disaster, death, suffering, Job himself got to the point where he wanted to die. We can't forget about Elijah 1 Kings chapter 19, the classic example of how burnout and suffering causes clinical depression. Just read. It's in the Bible. 1 Kings chapter 19. It's an amazing story because in 1 Kings chapter 19, when, when Elijah is by in, in the desert and, and he wants to die, and, 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 and if you read all the symptoms that he has, completely clinically depressed. God's first reaction to him is not, Elijah, get up and pray more. Elijah, get up and go to church and worship. It says in 1 Kings verse 19 that God sent an angel. The angel touched Elijah and said, Here, have something to eat. The angel ministered to his physical needs. You can't forget about Jeremiah. All right, I'm reading into his situation a bit. But if you read Jeremiah from chapter 1 all the way to verse, uh, chapter 33, he's called the weeping prophet for a reason. He was predisposed to melancholy. His highs were very high in the book, but his lows were very low. And those of you guys who have seen those who suffer from bipolar disorder, you might find Jeremiah's life very familiar. But you can't forget about the New Testament. That's just the Old Testament. The Apostle Paul says he despaired until the point of death. He was so worried. He despaired so much that he, they wanted to die, he says, because of the persecution and suffering they faced in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. But even beyond all that, he says, My greatest anxieties, the things that kept me up at night, what made me nervous all the time, What made me a little bit kind of like on edge all the time, he says, his greatest anxieties were for the churches that he planted because false teachers were coming to them and they were ransacking these churches, such as the church in Philippi, the one that we're studying. And you can't forget about Jesus. And I don't want to read too much into Jesus and begin to use pop pop, psychological terms on Jesus. But when you look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, when you see him, like face on the rock, and he's sweating drops of blood, which is in modern times called hematohydrosis. It's a, there's some medical people in here, so I don't want to go too far into that because you will know more than I do, and I want to look stupid. But essentially, it's 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 caused by this overwhelming anxiety, where the blood vessels in in your head they pop and they begin to come out through your pores in modern cases of this of hematohydrosis it was seen in women who were rape victims and prisoners who were being led to their execution and this is jesus he was a basket case in the garden of gethsemane you know people talk about when you're in the situation where you're worried and you're nervous that the flight and fight thing kind of kicks in right Jesus is saying to God, yo, I'm, I'm ready to flee. Like, I'm done, God. If there's any other way, right, fight or flight, I'm not ready to fight. I'm, I'm ready to flee. That's Jesus saying, Father, if, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. But there is enough in him that says, but your will, your will be done. I, I would rather call it quits right now, right? Jesus wasn't sinning. He was struggling through a mental health issue. He says, I'm done with this, but God, it's not really what I want, it's what you want. Church history, church history has not been silent on this. One of my favorite uh, uh, preachers, you can't hear him, you can't download his podcast, but you can read the thousands of sermons that he's left behind us. Uh, Because he wrote them all down. C.H. Spurgeon, he was called the Prince of Preachers. He led thousands to faith in Christ. He struggled with depression ever since he was a young adult. And I had this conversation with my sister who is a physician. She says, most people, when they begin uh, discovering that they have some sort of mental illness, it's usually, don't get paranoid, okay? Because I know we're a young church, so don't get paranoid. They usually begin to exhibit it between the ages of 19 to 25. It's usually right around that age when people begin to say, ah, oh, there's something that's not right with me or with, with my friend, right? It's usually 19 to 25. Spurgeon was about 1920 when he began realizing that he was struggling with what he called melancholy. It was such a big part of his life that he wrote an entire chapter in his book called Lectures to My Students. And it was, uh, he's writing this book to uh, ministers, and he gives 10 reasons why people in ministry, but really anybody, but people who are in particular are passionate about God's work, why they might experience depression. And as a pastor, like I find his insights really comforting and insightful. So let me, I to him real quick. 10 reasons for depression in ministry. Um, uh, Spurgeon says, number one, it's not first that they are meant. So he is a 19th century preacher, right? So you're going to read him and it's going to sound like old English and stuff like that, All right? So he says... Is it not first that there are men? All right? People just experience depression just because you're human beings. You're limited. All right? Secondly, he says, most of us are in some way or other unsound physically. All right? You're just not in shape. (laughs) I didn't need Spurgeon to tell me that. Right? Uh, You know, and so you get tired easily, and that affects your mood, blah, blah, blah. All right? So physical health, big factor. Right? Number three, our work. And again, he's talking specifically to those who are in the ministry. Our work, when earnestly undertaken, lays us open to attacks in the direction of depression. When your work consists of 50% to 75% of your time, people saying, oh, the cancer's back. I think she's really leaving me. Or my son's chronic disease. It's, 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 It's really killing our family. When your job consists of 50 to 75% of this, right? It's no wonder that you're left open to depression, right? Fourthly, our position in the church will also conduce to this, all right? And so, uh, for those who are in ministry in particular, all right, and I'm, you know, I'm sharing a little bit, but you can, if you're in any kind of leadership position at work, if you're a public figure, right, um, it's hard because you carry the burden, you have to make the decision. If you are a politician, very similar to pastors, your public, your private, your personal lives, they're all the same. Some of us, you have the luxury of being able to say, when I leave work, I leave work. When, I, when I'm with my family, with my family. People in public positions, we, they don't have that luxury. Your friends are also your work. Your work are also your friends. Your personal life also has to be your work, right? How do you hide? You can't hide. You shouldn't hide but you can get depressed. People do, all right. Fifthly, there can be little doubt that sedentary habits have a tendency to create despondency in some constitutions. He's just saying, okay, you sit around way too much, you watch way too much TV, you sit behind the cubicle, not enough exercise, not enough sunlight, that's the reason why you might be getting depressed. Go out and see the mountains he'll later on suggest in the book. Uh, uh sixth uh, reason, uh, before any great achievement, some measure of the same depression is very usual. Man, there's getting ready to be breakthrough in your life. It's coming. And whether it's spiritual or just because you've been working so hard, that's why you feel tired. That's why you feel discouraged. Breakthrough is coming, Spurgeon says. For most of us, you who are going to do anything great in life, in your family, in your workplace, for the kingdom of God. You will, without a doubt, experience lows in order to do great things. Because most of the great things that you're going to do require sacrifice. Sacrifice always hurts. And you always lose sleep. You're going to go through lows if great things are going to happen. Number seven, Spurgeon says, in the midst of a long stretch of unbroken labor, the same affliction may be looked for. People, it's not healthy to work 70-hour weeks consistently. I'll say it again. The human body was not made for 70-hour weeks. You can do it one week. You can do it two weeks. You might be able to do it three weeks. You can't do it throughout your career. Your body wasn't made to function that way. So important that God... Uh, implemented the Sabbath to remind us of that. Number eight, one crushing stroke sometimes laid the minister very low. (laughs) What does he mean by this? He says sometimes it doesn't take much. Sometimes you can just go up to say hey pastor I didn't quite understand what you were saying in your sermon. It really and so the pastor you know right we we have our own like brokenness and so we read way too much into it and, and basically our Google mind broken says oh They hated my sermon, right? I know you do it all the time too, right? Someone says, oh, your hair looks interesting. And instead of taking it as a compliment, you take it as a critique, right? And your mind goes all over the place. It doesn't take much sometimes to, to, to induce depression in somebody. Number nine, when troubles multiply and discouragements follow each other in long succession. Just things seem to be falling apart. Nothing seems to be happening. And just one thing after another, right? The story of Job. And then number 10, the evil will also come upon us. We know not why, and then it is all the more difficult to drive away. There are times when depression just comes on you. You just don't know. I don't know where this is coming from. I've been in this funk. They say clinically, if you experience lows for more than three weeks, you're probably clinically depressed, right? I don't know where it's coming from. Like, I'm doing everything right. I'm exercising. I'm eating. Like, there's no stress Where where I just don't feel right. And Spurgeon says, you know what? Sometimes... I don't know where it comes from. It just comes. Now if the Old Testament isn't silent, and the New Testament isn't silent, and church history isn't silent on depression and mental illness, why would the modern church be silent on this issue? The Bible and the church has always been a safe place to process mental illness and struggles with mental health. Don't let the shame and the embarrassment of some, wherever it came from, Don't let it dictate the culture of healing that God wants to build among us. Can we we make a decision as a church that we're not going to let the shame and embarrassment that other people feel dictate the culture that we're trying to build? Shake your head yes. All right. We're not going to let people's shame and guilt and embarrassment dictate the culture of healing that we want to see here at Trinity Life Church. In our passage today, the Apostle Paul is instructing the Philippian church on how to be people who live a life that's consistent with the gospel, consistent with the fact that in Jesus Christ, we have hope, we have victory, no matter the circumstance. There are those who claim Christianity, and they live in despair. And Paul is saying, don't despair. So I want to ask the question, how do we break the silence of mental illness in the church? How do we break the silence of mental illness? illness in the church. And I want to take the verses that Paul gave us and, and, and extract from it some practical things, right? Number one is, this is from verse 17. We should look for good examples in the body of Christ of those who live out the gospel with joy in the midst of struggle. And I love our devotion that we gave out because uh, every Saturday in the devotion, there's a story of somebody in our church who struggles with some form of mental illness. They're sharing their life. And they're doing it Maybe not perfectly, but they're doing it with joy, right? Look for some of those examples. Imitate their faith. Search this church, other churches, history books. There are people that you can learn from. Paul is saying in verse 17, he says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example um, that you have in us. There are people living out their lives properly glorifying God that are struggling in this area, turn and look at their life, imitate them, right? Secondly, Paul says in verse 19, their end, and he's talking about those who are enemies of the gospel, those who are living inconsistent of the Christian life. He says their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. The glory, they glory in their shame and with their minds set on earthly things. So from here, we can extract that we should keep our priorities straight, don't allow your physical struggles to be your primary way of viewing life. Now, if you struggle with mental illness, like I, I want to be very sensitive, um, but for those of us who, who you might not, or maybe you, you suffer occasionally from low moods, but it's not, it's, it is, it's not a big part of your life. But for those of you who chronically suffer from it, like, you know, the temptation to identify yourself as this person is very real. And Paul's saying, no, that's how other people define themselves by their appetites, by their flesh. Don't do it, Paul says. Don't let your illness define you. Don't be defined by how you feel, by your emotions. That's physical. Pay attention to it, but don't let it be your priority. And then thirdly, verses 20 to 21, Paul gives the hope. He says, how do you live your life in the midst of a generation where people are living inconsistent to the Bible and, and they live a life of despair? How do we do it? Paul says that our citizenship is in heaven And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And from this passage, we can extract that Jesus in heaven is proof that one day your illness will come to an end. Jesus in heaven is proof that one day our illnesses will come to an end. This is more than pie-in-the-sky thinking. It's the ultimate application of the gospel worked out in our life. That you would know that you would know that you would know you would know that no matter how you feel, or how other people feel, what they're going through, that through Jesus and because of heaven, there's proof that one day it'll all be, it'll all be made right. Some of us, especially if you didn't grow up in church, some of us hear heaven, and we roll our eyes, and we kind of think, oh, you know, there he goes, Christianity is a crutch. It's a pie-in-the-sky kind of fairy tale that people tell themselves so they, to help them get through hard times, right? And so, yes, some people do use heaven in that way. Some people do, do say, okay, you know, like, I mean, uh, you know, as we were mourning my mom, and she, you know, we were, we were um, celebrating her life, you know, the classic line that, you know, Very Christian people tell themselves. You know what the classic line is at funerals? Yeah, what was that? She's in a better place. Oh, you'll see her in heaven, right? Which is theologically not incorrect, completely. But it's not fully comforting. But it's also it's also a very cheap way to think about heaven, to be honest with you. Because heaven isn't just like a a pie-in-the-sky place where you escape suffering. That, that is an implication of it. But we need to have a, a, a deeper understanding. And to be honest with you, for those of us who say, oh, heaven is, you know, a way to kind of like, you know, excuse the way that we feel and to make us feel happier, you know that you know that you know that, that suffering and pain is, is, it has some emotional response. You, none of us are completely humanist that when we experience suffering and pain, we're just like, oh, okay, it's just, it just chemical reactions in our body, no big deal. Nobody feels that way, right? Even if you're completely atheist humanist, you don't feel that way. When pain and suffering happens, you have an emotional response. It means something, right? So even even the most humanist person would assign meaning to pain and suffering. So let's get back to heaven. Lewis says in his book, The Problem of Pain, fantastic book. He says, a book on suffering which says nothing of heaven is leaving out almost the whole of one side of the account. Scripture and tradition habitually put the joys of heaven into the scale against the sufferings of earth. In no solution of the problem of pain, which does not, um, which does not do so, can be called a Christian one. He says, "You can't deal with these things without talking about the reality of heaven. If heaven is not a fairy tale, and heaven is just not this abstract thought, what is heaven? And I just opened up a whole other can of worms that I don't have time to talk about. But I want to give us a little bit of an overview because I want to help us to root our thinking in what Paul's saying in verse 20 and 21. The hope for any kind of suffering, any kind of pain is rooted in the fact that heaven is actually the greatest reality through which we process all of life. There is no separation of physical and spiritual in heaven. There, there, that comes from Dante's Inferno. That comes from um, Platonist Greek philosophy. In the Bible, there is no separation of physical and spiritual. Heaven is a physical place. All right. That's the point of verse 20 and 21, Paul saying. Heaven is not a mystical place. In the sky, heaven is a paradigm worldview, it's a storage place, a physical place in which all that is being made right is entering into space and eternity. Um, I was trying to think of a movie that's done a great job of doing this, and no movie has really justified this. But it's this idea that like heaven is invading earth, like you've heard that probably at one time or another, but it's, it's a physical, it's, it's a reality, it's a paradigm, it's a worldview, it's the fact that God is opening up the divine and it's coming to be with us. And Paul is saying that that's happening with us. We saw it with Jesus and it's now happening to everyone whose hope is in him. The hope for the physical is not in the spiritual. The hope for the, the physical is not in the spiritual. The hope for the physical is in the heavenly. Because the heavenly is the ultimate physical and spiritual combination. Um, heaven is the combining of the two. That's where we belong. There's a longing inside of us for this, right? Paul says that it's, we long for that because that's the place that Jesus came from. It's not a multidimensional space that kind of just like exists in the eighth dimension world. It's where Jesus has come from, and it's, it's what's coming to us right now. It's not multidimensional. It's reality par excellence. It's the most real place. It's the future destiny of all of us. Heaven is earth's greatest reality. And Paul's saying that, that that's yours. That at the end of the day, if you don't get the cure, heaven is yours. There's a guarantee It doesn't make the depression go away right now, but you need to come back and root yourself on that. You can't root yourself in the medicine. You can't root yourself in the therapy. You have to come back and root yourself in the fact that one day, one day, the physical and the spiritual will be made perfect. And T. Wright writes about this, what Paul's teaching in these passages. He writes about it in his book, Surprised by Hope. It's a bit of a long paragraph, but it's worth us looking at. He says, what Paul is asking us to imagine is that there will be a new mode of physicality which stands in relation to our present body as our present body does to a ghost. It will be as much more real, more firmed up, more bodily than our present body as our present body is more substantial, more touchable than a disembodied spirit. So he's saying, you know, what our body is to a ghost, our current body will be to our Future body is that metaphor coming across to you guys. Right. We sometimes speak of someone who's been very ill as being a shadow of their former self. If Paul is right, a Christian in the present life is a mere shadow of his or her future self. The self that person will be when the body that God has waiting in his heavenly storeroom is brought out, already made to measure and put on over the present one. Or over the self that will still exist after bodily death. And what Wright is saying is this is that your future body, your future resurrection is the truest version of you. That you are currently a shadow of your future self. That there's there's something coming that's gonna be more real about you. And that's why when we say that you are not your illness, you are not your disease. You're not what you struggle with. You're not your financial situation. You're not your relational situation. What Paul is saying is on par of what Jesus is saying. When the kingdom of heaven invades, it's a reminder that this life, though we pay attention to it, is a shadow of the things to come. Um, As I wrap up our time... Uh, in previous sermons I've, I've shared with the church um, my personal struggles with depression as well it's nothing that I hide, it's been a part of my family's kind of genetic like thing, like truth be told, you guys know that my mom passed away two weeks ago, what you probably didn't know is she suffered a series of strokes that she could have recovered from, but because of her depression, she never did because she was never motivated uh, to recover from, uh, from the strokes and so it's hard to see how depression led to her demise and eventually led to her death. And so, and I, you know, there are times when, like, things get difficult, right? For those of you guys who understand what I'm talking about, when you don't want to wake up in the morning, and you don't want to open up the curtains, and you want to keep everything pitch black, and you don't want to take phone calls, like, a, you know, a one of five of us understand this, right? Uh, it's hard. It's difficult. And when I get into those moments, and it's not like, you know, it's not like it happens every month or anything like that. But when I get into those moments where it's really hard to get up in the morning, you know, I don't blame my genetics. I don't say, oh, it's my, my mom's side of the family's fault. Like, I don't, I don't blame my genetics. I don't blame my situation. Because I'm not defining myself by how I feel. In those moments when it's hard to lift the blanket off me, and you guys know what I'm talking about if you struggle with this where you can't even do, like, this motion, taking the blanket off. I remind myself that I am in Christ. I remind myself that my faith is not wavering just because I don't feel it. I'm not weaker because I feel this way. As a matter of fact, now is the time to apply my faith. And faith may not lead me necessarily to get up and like, you know, tell jokes or stuff like that. But faith tells me that in Christ, I'm currently a shadow of my future self. Man, I'm going tell you how many times I run to that. Because there are moments when the Google mind is broken and it processes the lies as it's truth. And it processes truth as if it's lies. And you have to root yourself in what Paul is saying. That the place that Jesus is coming from, where the physical and the spiritual are perfectly aligned, that's reserved for you. You get some of it now, apply faith for the rest of it, but one day it'll be yours 100% completely. There's something about the resurrection of Christ and the reality of heaven that brings tears to, to those of us who really believe it. I saw, We were watching Risen the other day. You guys seen that movie, Risen? I don't want to ruin it for you. I always ruin movies for you uh, from the pulpit. I was watching Risen the other day, and it's about Jesus and his resurrection. And one of, you know, the main character in the story, I'm going to ruin it for you. Uh, he was investigating Jesus, right? And uh, he didn't believe in the resurrection. He was tasked by Pilate to find Jesus' body. Uh, because it was gone, right? And so he was looking for it for days. And he walks into this room, and Jesus is sitting with his disciples. And his whole reality changed. And he walks into this room, and Jesus is sitting there with his 12, and they're crying on his shoulders. And he stumbles backwards. And he drops his sword. He doesn't know what to do with the rest of his life because he just got rocked with the reality that Jesus overcame death and for those of us who can embrace that truth, it changes your life it makes you look at your depression differently there's a guarantee that if you're in Christ you will be healed how can you not be hopeful in the midst of your darkness and if you're hopeful how can you not talk about it church, you have permission to talk about it because there's hope And if Jesus died to give you that, then it's time for you to live in it. Let's pray.